President Biden heads to Europe to meet NATO allies. He's hoping to resolve a year-long impasse that has left Sweden's fate in NATO unresolved. First, though, Biden stops in London to meet King Charles. For Saturday, July 8th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Tens of millions have signed up for Meta's Threads app this week. We'll look at what makes it different than Twitter and whether it can stick. Soccer icon Megan Rapinoe says she's hanging up her cleats, but only after gunning for a third straight World Cup win. And whatever happened to the larger-than-life box office gold movie star? Americans didn't have royalty, so these folks were our royalty. And to show you, we really do consider all the things. War! And NPR, they said it couldn't be done! A visit from the monsters of metal Guar. All that and more after news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with China's vice premier today and tried to convince him that the U.S. and China can work together despite their differences. NPR's Emily Fang has more. Yellen met the vice premier He Lifeng, China's top economic official in the Beijing State House. She noted that last year the two countries set a record for the volume of bilateral trade, showing, quote, there is ample room for our firms to engage in trade and investment. Earlier this week, during her visit to China, Yellen said she raised serious concerns about some uncompetitive measures China had taken against foreign firms. But during her meeting with He, Yellen noted the U.S. and China should also work together to tackle climate change and global debt, and that there is a, quote, wide swath of our economies that can interact in ways that are uncontroversial to both governments. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the U.K. remains committed to an international convention that he says discourages the use of cluster bombs. Villa Marks reports this as President Biden promised to deliver these munitions to Ukraine's military. The British leader told reporters that the U.K. is among 123 nations that have signed up to an international treaty designed to ban sales of the controversial munitions. Neither Ukraine, Russia or the U.S. have signed up to that same treaty. Sunak nonetheless emphasized that Britain would continue to back Ukraine and had itself supplied tanks and other heavy weaponry to Kiev in recent months in its conflict against what he termed Russia's act of barbarism. President Biden justified the decision by saying the Ukrainians were running out of ammunition, adding that the decision to supply the cluster bombs had been, quote, very difficult as a range of campaign groups came out against the decision. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. A Tennessee law that bans gender-affirming care for transgender youth can be enforced, despite being blocked by a federal judge last week. Mariana Bakayao of member station WPLN reports the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the decision today. The court sided with Tennessee's attorney general, who issued an emergency appeal to the court hours after a federal district judge temporarily blocked the law from taking effect. The court has until September 30th to decide whether the law takes effect. The plaintiff in the lawsuit, L.W., is a 15-year-old trans girl. She says that treatments like hormone therapy and puberty blockers are essential to her mental health. Without gender-affirming care, I wasn't really able to be myself because I physically wasn't myself. This decision marks the first time a federal court has allowed a ban on gender-affirming care to take effect after it was blocked by lower courts in other southern states. For NPR News, I'm Mariana Bakayao. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. 
We're hearing from the Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara a week after police say she crashed her car into a Jamaica Plain home while driving with a revoked license and operating an unregistered and uninsured car. Police say her young son in the car at the time was not in a required booster seat and needed stitches after the crash. In a statement this morning, this morning, Lara said she apologized to everyone, especially residents of her district, and she asked for grace as she works to correct her mistake. On this warm summer day, there are dozens of beaches in Massachusetts closed to swimming due to high levels of bacteria. As of yesterday, beaches in Boston, Beverly, Duxbury, Nahant, Salem, and Wareham are among the 70 or so flagged for water quality issues by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. To get the full list, go to public beach postings at mass.gov. A Framingham musician is wrapping up a live-streamed concert series he's put on since the start of the pandemic. Those concerts have raised nearly $12,000 for nonprofits. WBUR's Fausto Menard has the story. Damien Israel Shiner and his rock band The Displayers have had a standing date since the pandemic began. Every Saturday night at 6.30, he's in his living room or on the back deck to stream a half hour of music on Facebook Live. It sounds like peace. The shows became known as short sets. Sometimes they draw a thousand people, sometimes two dozen. Shiner's goal was to help people connect through music despite isolation. It wasn't long into it, maybe five or six weeks in a row, and realized, oh yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. Tonight, Shiner and the band will perform their 150th short set, and their last. Shiner says it just feels like the right time. Tonight's show begins at 6 on the Displayer's Facebook page. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 5.06, turning cloudy later and into the overnight hours around 70 degrees. Gray skies stick around for much of tomorrow, near 80. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. It's considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. President Biden is heading to Europe tomorrow. His primary mission, shore up the NATO alliance. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid is already in London, where Biden will visit first and joins us now. Hey, Asma. Hi there, Scott. So the president has staked a lot on his ability to rebuild NATO and strengthen alliances with Europe. What's at stake here? Well, Scott, I should just acknowledge uh, why I'm in London here, and that is because, as you said, Biden's going to begin his trip here in the United Kingdom. It's the first time he'll be meeting King Charles since uh, Charles was officially named king. Mm -hmm. But really the focus of this entire Europe trip is the NATO summit in Vilnius, that's in Lithuania, and Biden heads there on Monday. Uh, A key unresolved issue heading into this NATO summit is Sweden's membership. You might recall both Sweden and Finland applied to join the alliance after Russia invaded Ukraine, and it's been more than a year now since that application process and the Sweden issue is still unresolved. The main opposition has been coming from Turkey. Yeah, Finland got in. In fact, Biden's visiting Finland later in the trip, uh, but there are mm-hmm. 31 members of NATO. They all have to agree to allow a new member in. What is Turkey's opposition to Sweden? 
Well, experts tell me that broadly, Turkey has long felt like its priorities are overlooked by the NATO alliance. And Turkey believes Sweden needs to do more to crack down on groups that Turkey views as terrorists. Uh, it has been demanding Sweden extradite suspected Kurdish militants. Uh, but Scott, I will also say that experts tell me that this entire debate is not really entirely about Sweden. It's much more about the U.S.-Turkey dynamic. Uh, Sinan Jedi is a fellow with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he was telling me that Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan wants some assurances if he agrees to NATO expansion. President Erdogan figured that uh, he could use this as a leverage point. This has less to do with Sweden than, than it is uh, to do with what he can get out of the United States, specifically, which is weapon sales. And to be clear, the weapons he's referring to are F-16 fighter jets that Turkey wants from the United States. Yeah, what's the sticking point with, with those F-16s? Uh, really, at this point, the sticking point is Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got some key members, including Democrat Bob Menendez, who have to approve this sale, who have thus far publicly opposed it. Uh, you know, I will say in Washington, this is possibly seen as a bargaining chip. Uh, Biden has made it clear he wants Sweden to join NATO. And Erdogan, Turkey's president, has made it clear he wants the fighter jet. So we'll have to see exactly how this transpires in the coming weeks. I mean, Biden talking about, about uh, NATO all being on the same page at this moment has been such a key part of his presidency. Does this mm -hmm. Agreement expose cracks in that alliance? I mean, I will say there is no doubt that the alliance has been remarkably unified in its response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Biden intends to highlight that on his trip. Uh, you know, I will say, though, that this issue of Sweden is noteworthy. I mean, we've heard National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan tell reporters just the other day that they are confident Sweden will join NATO. He's just not sure of the timeline. Uh, but one expert I spoke with said that this issue of NATO expansion is exposing some disagreements. Um, you know, the alliance was built for defense purposes. It doesn't have a great way of dealing with internal disagreements. And, you know, that could be an ongoing issue, especially if you look at the debate over Ukraine joining NATO. And we expect that to come up here at the, the NATO summit. Uh, we've heard from this White House they want Ukraine to join, but there's, again, not a clear timetable of when that will happen. And this White House says Ukraine needs to implement additional reforms if it wants to join NATO. Sounds like a pretty busy night in London behind you, Asma. <laughs> Good talking to you. You too. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid in London. Say hi to King Charles for us. Facebook parent company Meta is making a splash with its new app Threads. It's a rival to Twitter. And in the first couple of days, more than 70 million people have downloaded it already. In response, Twitter owner Elon Musk is on the defensive and is threatening legal action. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us to catch up on this. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Scott. So there have been so many Twitter rivals that have just been instant duds. What is it about Threads that has made it such a hit so quickly? A few things. First is Meta. We know they own Instagram, one of the most popular social media apps. And Threads works by basically building on top of Instagram. So you download the Threads app, and with one click, you can port over everyone who follows you on Instagram into Threads. And some of these other Twitter rivals like Mastodon and Blue Sky and Post and so on, one of the key challenges was it was hard to like build the following that many people had on Twitter. But with Instagram, just one click, you can do that. So it's taking off. Another reason why it's ticking off, of course, is Twitter under Elon Musk. It's chaotic. It's unpredictable. Policy decisions come and go at the erratic whims of Elon Musk. Um, and Meta has just poured real engineering resources into this. It's sleek. It's simple. It's clean. Um, yeah, I mean, if anyone was going to try to sync uh, Twitter in a successful way, it was going to be Meta. And it's been a runaway success so far. And this happens 
a week or so after Twitter saw even more, uh, you know, the, the most unprecedented yet levels of dysfunction with uh, with limits on who could even view tweets. Elon Musk is threatening to sue Zuckerberg over threads now, saying Meta basically stole his intellectual property. Is there anything to this? I think before I answer that, we should look at the state of Twitter. Advertisers are fleeing in droves. Users are also rapidly leaving. The platform is worth much, much less than what it was when Elon bought it. You know, some 75% of the staff is gone. Elon Musk is really in a desperate position right here. And into that comes Mark Zuckerberg, who launches a Twitter clone that basically does everything that Twitter does, except as executives at Meta say, it's a more sanely run platform. And Musk saw this and said, you know what? I think this is copyright. This is taking my intellectual property uh, and, and has his lawyer send a mean legal letter. We'll see how this plays out. But at this point, the letter, Scott, is kind of saber rattling on behalf of Elon Musk and really nothing more than that. What do you think of it personally so far? I feel like for me, it's kind of strange to like you follow people, but that's not necessarily who you see when you open your phone. I'm having a hard time with that. I don't love threads so far. I find that my feed on Twitter and my feed on Instagram are very separate. When I log on to threads, I just see updates from people who are saying things I don't care about, to be honest. I mean, I, I go on Twitter to, to you know hear what's going on among fellow reporters, among newsmakers, among people in Silicon Valley, because that's what I cover. And when I go on threads, I'm just seeing you know updates from influencers and from creators and from somebody I added on Instagram 10 years ago, and I forgot they even existed. So for me, it's not really great. But you know, it's early. We're only a couple days in. This is early inning. So it surely can change. But right now, the algorithm's not really giving me what I want. I did just follow you on threads, though. You should know. Oh, you did. I'll yeah. follow you right back. All right. There you Give go. me a sec. <laughs> that's, that's Bobby Allen, our tech reporter. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Every day, thousands of people are released from prison. And oftentimes, they're set up to fail. In Alabama, a group of students and professors recently got a taste of the experience. They participated in a reentry simulation hosted by the U.S. Department of Justice. It's part of a nationwide effort to increase empathy for people leaving prison. From member station WBHM, Mary Scott Hodgen reports. In the real world, Trian Carmichael works at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and she's studying social work. But today... Carmichael is walking in the shoes of a man named Wessel. Been in prison, federal prison for 10 years. Carmichael is one of about 100 people participating in the simulation. The group is gathered in a large gym at the university's recreation center. Do you know anything about the reentry process? No, ma'am. That's why I was like, let me see how hard it is, how difficult it is to see what they actually go through. That's the idea behind the activity. Participants take on the persona of someone leaving prison. They get a list of tasks to complete at stations around the gym, check in at the probation office, pay fines at the courthouse, visit the employment office. One station is especially popular. Excuse me, what is this line for? State ID. You think you're going to make it? No. Oh, absolutely not. As another participant puts it, the line for an ID is a million years long. And those who make it through the line better be prepared to pay transportation costs plus a fee. People start the game with little to no money. They scramble to get the right documents, find work, and cash a check. At one point, Trion Carmichael is told she owes $75 on an outstanding warrant. Was this unexpected? Uh, Very much so. I finally found how to get some money. 
I'm supposed to get some every week, but it is horrible out here. Horrible. Things don't get much better from there. Don't know whether or not I need to go get some food before I pass out or go get my paycheck. I didn't pay child support, I didn't pay rent. It's a predicament for lots of people leaving prison. Nationwide, some states offer more reentry services than others. In Alabama, services are extremely limited, says Jeremy Shearer. We simply just don't make use of the time that we have people incarcerated, and so they don't have a plan when they come out. Shearer is an assistant U.S. attorney in Alabama. His office is one of many across the country that organize these reentry simulations. Shearer has conducted the activity with all kinds of people, including correctional officers and judges. He says it highlights ways to improve the system. Like in Alabama, officials could better prepare people in prison with more education and job training. The best practice model in reentry is reentry begins on day one. Alabama prison officials say reentry is a priority, but in recent years, their main focus has been funding new prison construction. As the event winds down, Tim Lanier addresses the group. I want to thank y'all for making me feel good today. I like putting y'all in jail. That was good. <laughs> Lanier is one of several formerly incarcerated people helping run the simulation. He says, all fun aside, the activity is just a glimpse at how stressful reentry can be. I really like the frustration I saw on the faces of the people that saw that they couldn't get things done. You know, just imagine that. Just imagine getting out of prison after being in there over 15, 16, 18, 20 years. They give you $10 in the bus ticket to tell you to come home. For participants like Treon Carmichael, just an hour of the simulation is enough. I'm tired. I'm just going to forget it. I'm going to jam myself. She says there's got to be a better way. Because basically, you set them up for failure. They're going back to prison, and they have no help. Carmichael is finishing up her social work degree. She says in the future, she may work with formerly incarcerated people and hopefully make the process a little easier. For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 518. Coming up at 6, we've got two hours of the Moth Radio Hour. Stay with us. Remember, WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. Lauren Holleran I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in China, stressing the importance of the two countries working together on global challenges. She says the record levels of trade between the U.S. and China last year show that even in a time of growing tension, there's room for the world's two biggest economies to do business with one another. She's in Beijing through tomorrow. 
Britain's prime minister says the U.K. remains committed to an international convention that he says discourages the use of cluster bombs. This after President Biden promised to deliver these munitions to Ukraine's military. And soccer superstar Megan Rapino is retiring. She says it will happen after she completes the World Cup this summer. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at Carnegie.org slash Great Immigrants. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. He's looking at you, kid. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Hey, Stella! Bogey, Bacall, Brando. You know movie stars when you hear them. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy, asking him to love her. King Kong ain't got on me! Pitt, Julia, Denzel, and with others, it's an image. Marilyn Monroe standing over a subway grate, the breeze billowing her white dress. Ooh, do you feel the breeze from the subway? Isn't it delicious? A young Tom Cruise, in brief, sliding across the living room floor to the sounds of Bob Seger. Just take those Or Audrey Hepburn, stepping outside of a taxi in black satin and tortoiseshell shades. I mean, when I think about movie stars, I think about someone who feels larger than life. NPR's pop culture happy hour host Aisha Harris has been thinking a lot about movie stars lately, and she's a little worried about their cultural health today. There's usually some sort of like mystique or mystery, I think, to a movie star. Since the golden age of Hollywood, movies have been defined by their stars. I feel the need. And in turn, they defined our times. But is that changing? Americans didn't have royalty, so these folks were our royalty. That's NPR's film critic Bob Mondello. He says long before the advent of franchises and intellectual property, major studios like MGM, Paramount, and Warner Brothers depended on stars to sell their movies to hungry audiences. Stars weren't just born, they were made. MGM used to brag that they had more stars than there are in heaven. They created those stars. They were uh, actors, workaday actors, um, who came to Hollywood, and they were groomed in a variety of ways. Their hair color was changed. Their names were changed. They did as much as they could to make someone glamorous. With the help of fan magazines and powerful gossip columnists with studio connections, they would cultivate their images and give them personalities. And those personalities stuck with them from picture to picture. You went to a Cary Grant picture because he was making a certain kind of movie. He was playing a certain kind of character. Sorry, the name's Adam Camfield. Adam Canfield? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. 
Don't you realize you've had three names in the past two days? I don't even know who I'm talking to anymore. Well, the man's the same, even if the name isn't. Those personalities burrowed into the minds of audiences whose principal form of entertainment was going to the movies. At the height of cinema's popularity, more than 80 million Americans went to the theater more than once a week as these studios cranked out movie after movie. Well, it was a factory system. In, in the early days of film, film was, was what television has become. If you put out a Ruby Keeler movie and it was a hit... Then you put out another one and another one and another one. And she, Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell made musicals together in the 1930s. They seem to come out every six months. Come on, I've been waiting long. Why don't we get started? Come on, maybe this is wrong. Well, gee, what are they? We just love it. And the rationale for that was to keep the machinery going. Mandela says that machinery began to break down as stars wanted more control over their careers and directors got more control over their movies. But the legacy of that old star system cast a long and lasting shadow over the industry. I mean, I look at photos from those days and think there's no one like that now. But even if there's no one today like Marilyn Monroe or Clark Gable, there are still movie stars, right? Well, not according to some of the stars themselves. Like, there are no movie stars anymore. Mm. Like, Anthony Mackie isn't a movie star. The Falcon is a movie star. The evolution of the superhero has meant the death of the movie star. That was a clip of Marvel actor Anthony Mackie from a 2018 Comic-Con event that's recently gone viral, and he's not the only one blaming the dominance of superhero movies and other established intellectual properties on the decline of the movie star. Director Quentin Tarantino echoed his words on a podcast late last year. You have all these actors who have become famous playing these, these parts, characters, yeah, yeah. but they're not movie stars. Right. Captain America is the star. Right. Thor is the star. Many critics have also sounded the alarm over a lack of real movie stars in Hollywood. Are there really none left? I asked pop culture happy hour host Aisha Harris. Well, I think it depends on how you define a movie star, right? I mean, there's also this idea of who is uh, bankable, who is going to draw a crowd merely just for the fact that they are in the movie. And I think to some extent that is true, that we don't really have movie stars in the traditional sense anymore. Because even when we're talking about someone like Tom Cruise, like, he is someone who I think when you think about Tom Cruise, you're like, I want to go see this movie because he's in it. But most of the movies he's made in the last decade have been franchise films. And so you have to question, you know, is this Tom Cruise who's driving, you know, all of this box office to movies like the Top Gun sequel and, you know, Mission Impossible? Or is it the franchise doing a lot of, a lot of the heavy lifting? Because we do live in this era now where franchise is king. All of our biggest stars now are in franchises. And it's hard to tell where their charisma and where their pull begins and where the pull of the franchise itself and the familiarity of the franchise uh, begins. Right. I mean, we've got uh, the the buzzy movies of the summer are what? Uh, Indiana Jones 5. You have we met? My memory is a little fuzzy. Are you still a Nazi? Mission Impossible 72. <laughs> yes. I think it's, uh, you know, is it, it seven part one, I think, actually? None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then Barbie, which is a movie based around a toy. 
Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Is IP Hi, Barbie. just the movie star now? I kind of think so. <laughs> it's interesting because you have like a, one example is Zoe Saldana, right? Zoe Saldana is uh, recently became the first performer to star in four movies that made at least $2 billion at the box office. Now, that's like a very arbitrary sort of record <laughs> to break, but it kind of points to this idea that, you know, Zoe Saldana, yes, she's famous, she's a movie star, but I wouldn't necessarily call her a movie star. Like, People aren't going to see Guardians of the Galaxy or Avatar just because she's in it. That's no shade to Zoe Zaldana, but like that's the truth. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the way that we are measuring movie star has, you know, had to shift because the landscape has shifted and things are not the same as they used to be 10, 15, you know, 50 years ago. How much does this matter, though? Does this matter just because these are people that we we think about and talk about and are common bonds for all of us or is there is there an effect on the movies being made if this if this orbit of movie stars that has has centered movies for so long is changing well i think it definitely matters in the sense of you know what is being released in theaters and what gets to be released in theaters. And so we're having this ongoing conversation about the death of moviegoing and the fact that the only way to get butts in seats seems to be to, you know, create this familiar IP and cast the biggest movie stars you can think of in them. And I think that from a creative standpoint, it feels kind of dire because yeah. I look, I, I'm I'm always happy for another Mission Impossible movie. I think that this is like the rare franchise where the movies have actually gotten better over the years but at the same time it'd be nice to see tom cruise in something that you know wasn't ip because some of his greatest performances are in you know dramas or or one-off you know movie action movie set pieces and i think that it, it it really does sort of swallow up in many ways our favorite actors and performers into these roles that are driven by not necessarily character driven or narrative driven but just by you know what is going to draw people into theaters and yeah. that's familiarity that is reboots that is sequels now I'm interrogating myself, and I feel like I've seen <laughs> a lot of movies I really like on my couch. And the only time I've been in a movie theater in the past year was a couple of weeks ago to see the new Flash movie, which I knew would be terrible, but I wanted to see Michael Keaton mm. as Batman. And I was like, you know, I'm I'm gonna go. And then and, and then it was terrible. Yeah, I mean, we're we're all complicit. We're all, <laughs> we're all part of the problem. <laughs> Our money is what is making Hollywood want to keep going back to the well and not being daring, not being creative, not being interesting. Unfortunately, you know. Is there a limit to this though? Because I mean, if you look at some of the returns. Indiana Jones, hard to find a bigger franchise than that. Harrison Ford, hard to find a bigger movie star than that, even though he is not exaggerating roughly the age of President Joe Biden. But I mean, it's it's it is it is underperforming and falling off a huge cliff. And and that's just one of several examples of, of what you think would be a no brainer, maybe not panning out. Or maybe we shouldn't make movies with. 80-year-old action stars is this the takeaway. I don't know. You could go a few different ways there. Well, I mean, I don't want to be ageist about it, but I do think that, you know, it, it doesn't help that the last Indiana Jones movie, it was widely panned for, for good reason. It was not very good. And so, you know, I think that something like Top Gun, the fact that that did so well at the box office last year definitely sort of... Um, 
kind of proves the opposite point. But you also have to realize that, that it had been like 30 plus years between the first and the second one. And so I think there was that that extra draw. And I think that the diminishing returns are often because there's just not enough time in between, you know, these, these sequels and these franchises. And um, it's just, I, I really do think though, now that I think about it, and now that you've asked that question, I do feel as though Tom Cruise does feel like sort of the the last sort of last person standing because, you know, yeah. all of his peers, even, you know, Will Smith, when he makes an action movie, it's not really doing it. It's not doing it the way that it did, you know, when he was Mr. Fourth of July for that long stretch of the late 90s into the to the aughts. Yeah. And I think part of it is also that Tom Cruise, unlike a lot of other movie stars, does not really play the social media game. If you look at his Instagram page, pretty much all of it is just promotion for whatever movie he's he's hawking, you know, that summer. Other performers like Will Smith uh, feel the need to put themselves out there on social media. And so there's there's not as much mystique or mystery there. Whereas with Tom Cruise, it's like we know a few things about him. We know about the Scientology. <laughs> we know about all that stuff. But like he doesn't really try to put himself and make himself seem like a normal person. Yeah. He still has that air of mystique. And, and that, I think, helps in bringing people into theaters because, you know, we don't know every little thing about him. And he doesn't do the prestige TV game either, right? If you want to see Tom Cruise, you have to get your butt to a movie theater. Yeah, that's very true too. He's he shows up every year to, you know, do his his Mission Impossible thing and that's that's what we're here for. <laughs> we know exactly what we're going to get with him. That was Aisha Harris, she's a host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. One of the biggest names in soccer is calling it a career. Megan Rapino announced today she'll be hanging up her cleats after the upcoming World Cup and the national women's soccer season concludes. I just want to be able to soak in every moment and you know share it with teammates and friends and family and, and share it with, with the rest of the world. If you only ever looked at what she did on the pitch, Rapino would have been a global star. But what really elevated her is what she did elsewhere. Rapino used her platform to advocate for gay rights, pay equity, and racial justice. Last year, I stood in the White House East Room covering a ceremony where President Biden draped the Presidential Medal of Freedom around Rapino's neck. Beyond the World Cup titles and Olympic medals, Megan is a champion for essential American truth that everyone, everyone is entitled to be treated with dignity and respect. Everyone. Rapino was often ahead of her peers in taking those stands. Back in 2012, she spoke to NPR about her decision to publicly come out as gay before that year's summer games. I think just, just being authentic and, and being proud of who I am, um, I think just felt good, I guess. It just felt like it was the right time. And not that I ever you know, hid anything or, or lied about anything, but now that it's out, um, we can start talking about it and start breaking down these barriers that are keeping really homosexuals from having full rights. Later this month in Australia and New Zealand, Rapino and her teammates will try for their third straight World Cup victory. The first match is June 21st against Vietnam. This is NPR News. After multiple hit signals, winning a Grammy Award and appearing on the cover of Sports Illustrated, German pop star Kim Petras has finally released her highly anticipated debut album. 
It's called Feed the Beast, and NPR music contributor Rihanna Cruz has this review. Anytime that you like, gonna give you my heart to break. So Kim Petras is a German singer-songwriter, and her first big break on the scene came in 2017. She had a streak of super catchy bubblegum singles. Their songs like Heart to Break, I Don't Want It At All, these tracks that are fun and silly and boiled down Petrus's persona to one of nostalgic femininity. I'm young, pretty, blonde, and rich. Petrus's new album, Feed the Beast, is technically her debut record, but comes after several years of full-length projects. And she's the type of artist that if you don't know her by name, you've probably heard her voice. She had a collaboration with Sam Smith called Unholy, which hit number one back in October and now has over a billion streams. Unholy is the bonus track on Feed the Beast, and you would think that the popularity of that track would have set Petrus up for a breakout year. However, I I think the record ultimately ends up being unremarkable and unfortunately kind of proves that the bigger that Kim Petrus' celebrity becomes, the less personality her music has and the album suffers as a result. is Feed the Beast, the title track on the record. And the special glimmer that I think is in Kim Petrus's original songs isn't present here. It, it seems to have vanished in favor of like an uninspired sort of caricature of, of the idea of Kim Petrus. It's the same synth-heavy pop music that she's made her entire career, but without the scrappier ethos of a budding artist. There's some highlights on Feed the Beast. There's a track called Uh-Oh that feels like it could be from an earlier Kim Petras project. It's fun and it's exciting and it shows that there's glimmers of what people come to Kim Petras for. It shows that she's kind of self-aware putting out these tracks that speak to her actual audience. But outside of these tracks, outside of Uh Uh-Oh, outside of Coconuts, a track from 2021 that made it onto the album, the record feels confused as if Feed the Beast trades in Kim Petras' distinct personality and in a way, she might actually be feeding the beast, just not in the way that she hoped. That was NPR music contributor Rihanna Cruz. Kim Petras' new album, Feed the Beast, is out now. This is NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 539. Coming up at 6, we got two hours of the Moth Radio Hour.
connection, healing, and grief. All those stories coming up on the next Moth Radio Hour beginning at 6 on 90.9 WBUR and anytime on the WBUR app. At Fenway this afternoon, the Red Sox are in the lead against the Oakland A's. It's 7-1, top of the fifth. Increasing clouds for later tonight into the overnight hours, low around 70. Gray skies stick around for much of tomorrow, highs near 80. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón. Now through July 30th, amrep.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukraine's president posted a video of himself taking a defiant boat trip to Snake Island in the Black Sea. The Russian Navy controls that body of water where Ukraine's Navy has no real presence. Six people are dead after their small business jet crashed into its second approach in Southern California today, ending in a fire that burned more than an acre. The FAA says the plane took off from Las Vegas. There is no word on a cause. And the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill says it's giving free tuition to in-state students whose families make less than $80,000 a year. This a week after the Supreme Court set new limits on affirmative action, finding that UNC and Harvard violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. This year, amid a troubling decline in mental health among young people, NPR's Student Podcast Challenge asked students to submit their stories about the issue. Hundreds of middle and high schoolers responded. Today, we're bringing you some of the finalists in our first ever prize for podcasts about mental health. Here's NPR's Lauren McGaughy. There are some things about being a student that never change. Whether it's doodling during a boring lesson or setting fires with the Bunsen burners, there's always a way to zone out in the classroom. But today's young folks are fending off distractions from a technology that throws a scary amount of information and disruptions at them constantly. I kind of give my attention to the board in class, and I struggle talking to others in person during that time period. That's Jesus Ledesma Hernandez, a student at Herbert Hoover High School in San Diego. He says he was a gifted student, but during the pandemic, he found himself unable to resist the pull of endless online scrolling. I knew the factors trade off using my phone in class, but I just dug myself a hole and I now wanted to get out of it. Hey, I'm your co-host Huang and I've gone through something similar myself in my freshman year, but we both aren't looking for sympathy. Instead, we are going to be answering how technology distracts many teenagers like us and what teens can do to be more present today. In their podcast, Jesus and Huang Long Dong dig themselves out of the doom scroll hole. But first, a bit about the brain. 
They explore the science behind brain development. Focus on your breathing for a bit. And offer ways to focus on the present with journaling and mindfulness. They notice the small things and process them. For Jesus, logging offline allowed him to focus, literally, on his passion for photography. It seemed that I was stuck before in the rabbit hole of consumption. But with mindfulness, I got out of it. I should get you out too. And while Jesus discovered a passion, No, I'm not hungry. Grace Go created a podcast about something she once loved that became a source of discomfort. Ham, sausage, spam, a packet of instant noodles, all cooked in a spicy broth topped with American cheese and chopped scallions. Pudetjige is a popular South Korean dish created in the 50s in the midst of the war. Grace, who attends Mercer Island High School in Washington State, talks about the ways that food can be an expression of love for many immigrant parents. But it can also be problematic. Grace, I think you can wait. These were real comments made to me by my relatives almost weekly. And over time, what they said had a significant impact on the state of my mental health and my relationship with my self-image. For years, I didn't eat properly. Then finally, in November of 2021, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder. Of course, this doesn't just happen in immigrant families, but Grace points out that some cultures are reluctant to seek mental health treatment. And even if they do, people of color are less likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. But with the proper treatment, right resources, and a stomach full of pudetjige, now I can say that as long as I know I'm healthy, how I look is such a small fraction of who I am and what I'm worth. She says she made this podcast for other students who are struggling. So that one day, others who have experienced a similar journey to mine will be able to enjoy their discomfort and find comfort within it. Many of our mental health entries found comfort in the arts. Did you know about the link between mental health and creativity? I didn't. Angelica Schmidt and Abigail Brandwine, students at Irvington Middle School in New York, used their podcast to explore the ways that mental health shows up in artwork. I've heard about the artist of The Scream, Edward Munch. Apparently, he used his artwork to express his inner struggles with anxiety, depression, and other conditions. The background of The Scream was even inspired by a sunset he saw while on a walk, trembling with anxiety. They interview high school art teacher Diana Schwartz about her students' work. If they're struggling with something, they express it in their artwork. It helps them solve things. It gives them an outlet. Yeah, exactly. Texas high schooler Cameron Wallace also grew up loving art. But when I started high school, I left my sketchbooks and my brushes behind. It wasn't until his senior year at Cypress Woods High School that something changed. The past few months, I have made the 30-minute drive into Houston for the sole purpose of art. I visited the Lawndale Art Center, the Contemporary Arts Museum of Houston. Houston Cameron says now that he's a bit older, experienced a little more pain, he was drawn back to art. He describes seeing a piece titled The Secret Society of Grief by artist Royal Sumika. The crowd congregated outside to view her massive piece that stretched across the wall of the building. Royal's illustration was of four figures carrying varying sizes of crystals. One figure in the middle of the scene has toppled over onto their side as they bear the weight of an enormous crystal. These crystals, as Royal explains, represent the love someone has for a person. Now these crystals, so full of love, overburden the figures as they have lost the person they have loved so much. Cameron attended the artist's talk, where others in the audience shared their stories of loss, and a community formed. After Royal closed, I found myself retreating back to a previous exhibition, appropriately labeled A Good Cry, and I cried. It gave him a chance to mourn his own loss, the death of his uncle. These emotions that I avoided for weeks ended up right in front of my eyes. I finally confronted this grief and began my process of accepting it instead of fighting it. 
Through art, I found a part of myself displayed by someone else. Without Roll's installation, I truly believed that my pain would persist greater and I wouldn't have begun to find resolve in my grief. Cameron ends with a lesson for all of us. To fight grief is to delay the process of healing. To heal is to express what you have lost. To express what you have lost is to create art. Lauren Migaki, NPR News. Next week, we'll announce the winner of our mental health podcast. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. In her debut short story collection, Alia Bilal writes about one particular community in the U.S. The community is a collection of African-Americans who were once upon a time members of the Nation of Islam, though they have moved on to Sunni orthodoxy. And the majority of the stories depict these individuals reflecting back on their times in the Nation of Islam from the perch of, again, Sunni orthodoxy. Temple Folk tells the stories of dozens of black Muslims over the course of several decades. It tackles issues like freedom, love, and family in a way that Bilal says cuts through the biases many people have about her community. Quite understandably, when you mention the Nation of Islam, many people's first associations are with hate. And it was important for me to understand that that was and I suppose remains a facet of the Nation of Islam and its ideology. Though for the majority of the people that joined this movement, their primary motivations were not about hatred of others. I think that they brought a profound sense of personal need to the Nation of Islam that other organs in the culture were not addressing. And it was just important for me to balance those interests of depicting a lot of the hardships that were endured by the members in the Nation of Islam, a lot of the harsh realities of the Nation of Islam, alongside the sense that people were really deriving a sense of self-worth and meaning out of this movement. I want to talk about a couple stories that, that really stood out to me. And, and one of my favorite stories was Candy for Hanif. It centers on a woman named Sister Nora who's raising her son who has special needs. Can you tell us a bit about her and, and how she came to you as a character? Sister Nora is someone who came to me reminding me of some of the women that I knew in the days where I was a frequent parishioner of my masjid in Washington, D.C., there were lots of women in that space who worked in the kitchen, and they often were not rewarded adequately for their efforts, cooking food for the Juma and the Sunday Ta'alim. Their work was essential to the functioning and the joy that people derived from actually going, but I never saw them rewarded for their efforts. And I thought that a character like Sister Nora could really encapsulate this feeling of someone who sees herself doing righteous work, helping to feed her community and not being rewarded for it. Yeah. And how do we bring her to a place where she has to realize that something has to give? You know, I can no longer bear the weight of this. Yeah. And so that's Candy for Hanif in a nutshell. 
And and in the story, they are being recognized and rewarded, and that experience kind of leads to the, this epiphany for her. And and I think as, as you talk about that, it, it jumps out to me that even if these women aren't being fully acknowledged for the work they do, they find a community with each other, and all of them have real deep needs for community in their lives. Nora is taking care of her son, and another woman she works with takes care of her husband, and it feels like they're at home in the setting with each other, even if they're not being recognized by the broader community. That's right. I mean, in the few stories that do get told about African-Americans in the United States, African-American Muslims, that is, they tend to feature the experiences of men. And I wanted to take some time to really focus on the realities that African-American women face in our communities. And those realities are sometimes wonderful and sometimes they're just not. And this story really encapsulates that feeling of being in a place where you're not fully appreciated and in your own way, how do you protest? How do you protest the lack of appreciation? Yeah. Another story that I really liked was Janaza. It's about two childhood classmates who reconnect at the funeral of an old teacher. But it's also more broadly about one man coming to terms with his marriage and his life choices and the big differences between his life inside this Muslim community and the life that he made for himself outside of that Muslim community. Can you tell us a bit about what inspired this story? This story was inspired by some of what my family imparted to me about their experiences with abuse as students in the Nation of Islam School, the University of Islam, I wanted to spell out for the reader this complex mix of emotions that comes with acknowledging the ways that these movements harm their followers, but also acknowledging that while there was a negative impact, there was some positive intent. And so we have these two men who are confronting these memories and, you know, sort of going back and forth about the virtues of this man who's died, mm -hmm. you know, he just has this mixed legacy that the two of them are contending with all these decades later. Yeah. And um, that as a microcosm of what the nation of Islam meant to many people who left the movement. There are lots of people walking around today with scars and they don't feel they're able to really voice these things lest they appear to be disloyal to this movement that is so meaningful, not just to the current members, but to many sympathetic African-Americans of various religious persuasions. And both of those two stories have a powerful theme of escape in them. Um, characters wrestling with tension about what they want to do versus what they should do or what they want to do versus the fear of taking that step. And I felt it most powerfully in those two stories, but it's it's an undercurrent of the other stories in this collection as well. What, what draws you to that idea? Well, that idea really comes to the thesis behind the book where I'm really asking questions not just of the Black Muslim experience, but wondering how it fits into this larger story of African-American religion. If African-American religion is truly about the project of freedom and advancing freedom in the lives of African-American people, 
there are ways that each of our religious movements advance the cause of freedom. And there are other ways that they stifle freedom in the lives of individual people. Mm-hmm. And what must those individuals do but move on? And I am showing at various points people coming into an awareness that their place within this particular culture does or does not satisfy their own desire for freedom. And then how do they renegotiate their place within the religion? That's Alia Bilal. Her short story collection is called Temple Folk. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You never know who you're going to talk to next when you're in the host chair here at NPR. A senator, a presidential candidate, maybe an actor or author. Earlier this week, sitting in the All Things Considered studio, I got a visit unlike any I've had before. A visit from the legendary, the mythical, the epically costumed metal band, Guar. Is this everything considered? Oh, no, it's all things considered. considered. Is that you? We're confused. Yes, we're supposed to go to absolutely nothing considered ever at all. (laughs) So uh, about their costumes, they're kind of hard to describe. It's it's a mix of like medieval war armor meets sci-fi alien meets a little bit of a huggable Sesame Street monster, although some of their humor isn't quite suitable for a children's program. And I would say neither are their prosthetic uh, body parts. You got a lot of CDs back there. We do. CDs. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. As much as I'd like to say the Richmond, Virginia-based band was in the building to see me, the truth is they were popping in to say hi after wrapping up a set at NPR's Tiny Desk. Thank you, people! War! And NPR, they said it couldn't be done! War's distinct metal sound, which has inspired a cult following since the 1980s, is equal parts relentless and unpretentious. And it was gratifying to learn that under the monster masks, the band members really seem to be longtime NPR listeners. We're actually a little uh, nervous here at, uh, you know, it's the home of uh, Nina Totenberg and... uh... Terry friggin' gross. Hey, Terry, hey, watch gross. your mouth. Hey, no, she's, she's Why are you gross. calling whoa, people whoa, whoa, whoa. names? No, she is a gross. She's You're gross. Your hygiene's not all great. 